Hello, everyone. It's beautiful to have you here. I just want to say, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Let's get one to you. And one, uh, here comes Daniel and Daniel and Suzanne. Look at that. You guys are great. You're awesome. Okay. Once you get them, please open them up to Matthew chapter 21. But while you're at it, if you can find it as well, and hopefully you should, it's a fairly sizable book of the Old Testament. Also, put your finger in Ezekiel 8. It says, then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seed of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hoshana, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And he said to them, Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany. And he lodged there. You pray with me, please. Father, we've given you this time. We're setting it aside for the purpose, Lord, of you being exalted. For you to be able to speak to us in such a way, Lord, that we could hear you. Then we recognize, Lord, there will be challenges. There will be challenges internally and externally. Lord, there always will be. Lord, there could be always, we could find something we think is a legitimate reason to not let you minister to us. And just in that perspective, that seems so senseless. But Lord, today here in this room, as we've gathered, please help us, Lord, to interface with you. We give ourselves over to your will here, not our own. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would have his perfect work among us. Save, equip, challenge, encourage. May we all, every one of us, may we get it. May we truly, wholeheartedly get it. So by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, do your work now, we pray. Come upon me, immerse me, that you would be seen. And speak a word to each of us, individually, as people, corporately, as a family. I just thank you, Lord, for the privilege of this time. Bless every moment of it, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today's, I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority. Let the Bible always be that for which you test and hold all things. It's interesting how many people have used this text to actually, in essence, co-sign their own anger management problems. So let me address that first as a side note, and then we'll dive right into the text. This is Monday, prior to the Friday that Jesus will be executed. On Sunday, we recognize in the beginning of this chapter, for the first, if you will, 11 verses, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. 
The people have been crying out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They've been looking for a king. They've been looking for a savior. And they cry out, Hoshana, like Hoshea, savior. Va'ana, or Anna, now, or I pray, the idea of an urgency. Hosanna means save now. But they were looking for salvation, if you will, from the Romans, from their discomforts. But they weren't looking for the salvation that would be enduring for each of us. Salvation from the guilt of our sins. And Jesus descends into Jerusalem and he's weeping, according to the Gospel of Luke. He's weeping because he recognizes, though there's going to be a response, and it seems to be the majority, the crowd, they are cheering and they are screaming. There's lots of emotion. But there really isn't this willingness to get behind God's will. They entered into it with a purpose of having God do what they want. And he recognizes ultimately, as Jesus had just recently called Lazarus out of the tomb, and Lazarus came, Jesus has come to Jerusalem to call the people out of theirs, and they wouldn't come. But in Mark 11, 11, we read, at the end of that day, Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple, and when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And, of course, we looked at the fact that there was Bethany and Bethphage and how Jesus would return the donkey, if you will. Donkeys. But it is important to know what Mark tells us is, is that Jesus went in on what we know as Palm Sunday. He looked around. The hour was late. I mean, it took him a while to get there. And then what he did is, is he looked around. He went back and he went back to Bethany, which is the area of Simon the leper, the area of Lazarus, uh, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And Jesus, we don't read anywhere, ever spends the night in Jerusalem. He spends it in Bethany. Well, why would you want to spend the night in the city where they want to kill you when you could spend it with a friend in Bethany? But then it tells us after that that Jesus does this then on the following day, which then makes this Monday. Now, this is really, really important because what this tells us is it isn't like Jesus walked into the temple. He was so overwhelmed by what he saw that he sort of turned green, his shirt ripped open, and he's like, and then he just starts beating everyone around him. And some people will use that and they'll say, well, check it out. See, Jesus did it, so why shouldn't I? This was a very calculated, led event. It tells us for what it's worth, and again, this is a side note, but I want to dive deep into our text. It tells us that we can be angry and not sin because it tells us in Psalm 4.4 to be angry and not sin. That seems pretty simple to me. Yet interestingly enough, God himself can get angry. We read, by the way, his anger, though, is for a moment, Psalm 30, verse 5, but his favors for life. But he is slow to it, Psalm 103.8, slow to anger. But he is abounding in mercy. But there's a difference between God's anger as he's angry at the sinner and his sin and man's anger. It tells us in James 1.19 that let every man be quick to listen, slow to hear. I'm sorry, quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life God desires. See, when man gets angry, the reason we get angry is we take it personally. We lose perspective, and it becomes all about us. When God gets angry, it's because he actually wants us. His focus is on us. Not on himself. When God acts in anger, he acts in anger for the purpose of correction to bring us back to him. When we act in anger, we usually drive people away. And there's a very big difference. So let's just start here. 
with this. This was not Jesus just freaking out, losing his temper, and as a result of that, a bunch of people freaking out. As a matter of fact, as a result of that, notice, by the way, and it's important to note here, that as Jesus dives into, into this, at the end of this response, look at verse 14 with me. It tells us, Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Now, if Jesus really had freaked out, turned green, and just started tearing up everything and people limb from limb, would you then go to Jesus afterwards and ask to be healed? I'd kind of give him a day to cool off. How about you? But what seems clear is, is that Jesus had come there to interface with people, and he had actually found the house very, very messed up. Very, very clearly. He makes clear what the house is supposed to be, but then he also makes clear what the house has become. Now, I want to remind you, the first verse of this text tells us that this was not just the temple, but notice God made really clear its ownership, the temple of God, he tells us. This was God's temple, and God the Son has come home. There are places, and we hear stories. Bejula is one of those places, which, by the way, if you will, is, is just outside of Bethlehem. It is an area of Arab, if you will, Arab-born Christians. And they are, in essence, enemy to most people because they're Christians. They're not much liked by the, Jews, the Jewish people in the area, but they're also much hated by the Muslims because they see them as complete traitors. And we have friends that are there. Well, we had friends that are there. We had a time to spend with these people and invest in them, help them rebuild their houses. We would come back the next year so excited about seeing them. I want to find out that every person that we known had been killed. You see, they had gone out. And as they'd gone out, they'd, been, they'd gone out because the tension was rough in the area and they went and sought relatives and then they were told it was safe to come back. But when they came back, well, Muslim soldiers had actually taken over their, their houses. Imagine coming home thinking you were safe, coming home and remembering where your couch is and where your remote was left and, you know, and then thinking you're going to be gone for a couple of days or whatever the case is. And you come back in and you know what's in the fridge and you kind of get that taste. Oh, I can't wait to put that back in the microwave or whatever it is. And you know all of the comforts. You can walk up the stairs with your eyes closed and you know turning left is going to get you to this room and going straight is going to get you here. And imagine going home, but only finding out that enemy, enemies that want you dead have taken over your house. And in which case these people, and what made it even worse is that these particular Muslim soldiers had also had, were given by their mullah, by the person who oversaw their mosque, they were given what's called an open writ of marriage. Do you know what that is? What that means is any girl that they see, they can write their name on it, and that gives them permission to rape them. That's what it means. Forgive me for being so graphic. The whole point of it is, is this is what had happened when these people came home, for which then the father sought then to defend their daughters, for which then they were promptly murdered. And there's something inside of me that gets angry when I hear that. There's something inside of me that just gets indignant when I hear that. Because this was not their house. This was not their right to do that. But that's what Jesus is finding when he's actually going home. Jesus found that the house has been taken over and he even calls it, notice, a den of thieves. If you will, it's a lair for his enemies to come and set up shop. That's what he's talking about here. So please hear me on this. When Jesus comes into this place, though that is the case, he still doesn't respond immediately. He still goes back and you can see him seeking the father and going, all right, dad, what do we do with this situation? Well, that's where it goes here. We hear the stories in Uganda of people who come home only to find that their house is completely overwritten by the LR. You know, the LRA, the Lord's Resistance Army, and the people that have kind of come and stolen the children and, and, and brought them into these sort of military situations. It's horrible. And Jesus is finding very similar, the same thing here. 
Now understand, this is supposed to be God's house. And we read, of course, Jesus has come to clean it. So go with it for me, with me for a moment through this text, because I really want us to get the, the depth of it. And, but then I, I pray that as we look at it, we kind of really get the seriousness of this situation. But then we also get, to be honest, how intimate it is for each of us. And strangely enough, at the end, the encouragement that God provides is a result of it. So, so hear me. It's Monday, the day after Jesus had descended. Everyone's saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Certainly, children are still going to say that here. We see that and they'll be rebuked for it. And Jesus has gone into the temple of God. And we, 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 we read that he began to drive out or that he drove out a group of people. Driving out, the word, by the way, in the Greek is the word ekbalo. It's a great word. Ek, like exterior, means out. Balo means to throw. It literally means he threw them out. So this was not just Jesus freaking out and people fled. Jesus literally kicked them out. Now, who did he kick out? Those who bought and sold. Do you notice that here? It's interesting. Matthew, the writer of this text, assumes that, we assume he's actually there watching this situation. And here is Jesus. He's come with his disciples, which just means he's come with his students. And he's come into the place. And imagine the excitement we would get as we would go and be able to see Jesus go into his house and be able to intimize with the Father and how cool that would be. Three of us saw that to some degree when we actually went up on a hill with him and we watched him have this board meeting with Elijah and Moses, and, but not the rest of us. And Jesus is entered in and the place has become a street fair. And he's going to drive out then two groups of people according to this. It's important to note the shoppers and the sellers. And I want to start there. Please hear me in this. On one side, there's the consumer. They have come for the purpose of getting something. It's still very selfish based. And if they can get it at the church, that'd be awesome. On the other side, if it's the profiteer, the person who's come with the purpose of making a profit, they've also come selfishly. With the idea that if they can get and find the right people, the right constituents, well, then they'll make a profit off of it. So what if Jesus drove that out of the church? If Jesus went through every church in England and he drove at every person who came in as a consumer. You know, we don't go church hopping. We go church shopping now, right? We're shopping churches. Any wise consumer gives the least amount he can and gets the most for it. That's what a consumer does. And we can do that. We can train each other to do that. We can say, well, you know, as long as I can get to church, things will get better. As if somehow you have to get there to get right with God. How strange is that? As if God's waiting in the house here and you've been running around doing crazy stuff all week. And then somehow maybe if you get here, he'll finally give you a moment of time. What kind of crazy relationship is that? And on one side, there are those that what they've come with is very selfish ambition. And we'll talk about that here in a moment in Ezekiel 8. Uh, but then on the other side of it, there are those who've just come because really they think they can make they can get something out of it. They're also consumers, but they're just sellers to do it. And what they're going to get is adoration. They're going to get their stuff or maybe they'll just think they can make a lot of money off of this. And certainly we when we talk to people about Jesus on the streets, we know that people like that, really, most of the people we talk to, that's normally their go-to. 
to try to sort of, it's like Christian pepper spray. They can sort of bring out some nutcase that's been on television or whatever, then somehow they think that will chase us away. Well, what if you drove all of those people out? I wonder if I'd stay. I mean, if, I wonder if I would be welcome at that point. Do I come in with selfish ambition? Do I come in with the idea that if I could just come in, I could get, I could get, I could get, I could get? Is if really church or Jesus or both were a means to an end? But what if I could get it outside of that? Well, then I wouldn't come at all. Why would I? If what I really wanted was whatever the thing was. Do you know what would be left, though? People that came for him. People that came to pray. Which is exactly what Jesus is telling us here. Flip, if you will, for a moment, because I want to kind of get to the heart of this, all the way back to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 8. When we first moved here six years ago, we moved up to, I mean, unaware of how unbelievably expensive anything is here. You know, you're aware of that now. Even parking here is, you know, it, we couldn't afford a parking spot for the day to live in. Uh, but we've just the same moved up to the area of Hampstead Heath. And when we moved to the area of Hampstead Heath on the corner there near South and Green were these two giant churches, church buildings. One we had learned, by the way, would be taken over by, as a recording studio, Air Studios. A lot of film uh, production goes on there. But the other one was vacant, completely vacant. And uh, we had seen that somebody had rented it to be able to do something kind of tawdry and wonky, some kind of half-dressed fashion show where warning nudity, that kind of thing. I thought, wow, crazy. So we tried to contact the uh, people who were in charge of the uh, building and saying, well, what if we used it on a Sunday? Wouldn't that be crazy? I don't know. Church people meeting in a church building on a Sunday. Is that weird? And they said, no, no, you can't do that. The, the building has been officially deconsecrated. Now, I've never heard this term before. We have never heard anyone say the term deconsecrated in America. But the idea was somewhere down the line, somebody that was in some form of leadership position within the Church of England, because the church was originally from that, or under the governance of it, basically waved their hand and did something and said, from this point on, you cannot do anything religious in this building. But instead, you can have your half-naked things and everyone can get drunk and barf all over the outside of the building. We'd see that regularly. But you couldn't use the building to, to glorify God. And that, that astounded me. I mean, to be honest, even to this day, I'm a bit shocked at the idea that someone could say, all right, well, we've made an official decision. From this point on, you could do whatever you want in this building as long as it doesn't involve God. How strange is that? And the reason I say that is, what would a building have to do to be deconsecrated? What would a building have to do for they say, well, from this point on, it's no longer set apart for that purpose? What would it be like for God to deconsecrate something? Well, there are certainly situations in Scripture where we read that the glory of God leaves. We see that, of course, with Eli and his two sons, Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, puncher and serpent mouth, who are sleeping with girls at the, the, the door of the temple, or at that point, the tabernacle. And how God had given a prophecy, and as at the ultimate end of the prophecy, this woman dies, her child is born, and they name him Ichabod. Ichabod means the glory's departed. 
we see that God speaks about that. Well, we're going to see in regards to Ezekiel, we are at this point for what it's worth in time. Uh, we're really at a place where we're about four to five years before the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. That takes us roughly a year or two before uh, or after the beginning of the book of Ezekiel. And what happens here is Ezekiel has these experiences with God. And, and, and please understand, uh, as much as this seems like a side point, this is really... I can see why God wants to speak to us in this generation at this time about this specific issue, even though, to be honest, it really took place, if you think about it, roughly about, you know, 2,600 years ago. It tells us in Ezekiel 1.8, it came to pass in the sixth year, the sixth month, and the fifth day of the month. That, give, that puts us at the 17th of September, 592 B.C. Now, consider where we're at today. So that means that we're actually, if you think about it, six days from now. It'll be next Saturday. We'll be the 17th of September, which again puts us at 15-year anniversary today of 911, or we might say here 119, uh, the 11th of September. What took place there? Of course, horrible in uh, the East Coast in New York. And he was sitting. Israel has been taken captive, and they will be taken captive in three exploits. Uh, the first time, by the way, they uh, took all of the best guys, from which Daniel. And the three guys that we know, the Hebrew boys that are thrown in the furnace, those guys, all of that's taken from the first group. Now you would think, yay, I made the first group, I'm the best guys. But every one of those guys was castrated, made a eunuch to serve in the, temp, in their, uh, in the palace. Uh, it doesn't sound so exciting to me. The second group then is sort of, if you will, the second string, but that is Ezekiel. And with that, uh, 10,000 other guys. Ezekiel, by the way, is a priest. Uh, and God wants to make sure that he has a witness in the palace, but also out in the general mass of people taken captive. And they're brought to a place called the Brook Besor. And they're, if in essence, they're brought, if you think about it, to Iraq or Iran, actually. And, 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 and what's happening, please follow me on this, is that he's there and he's going to have these visions. And this is one of them. And, and understand how weird would it be to watch all of these people taken captive and the brutality of the Babylonian kingdom and kind of try to reconcile the goodness of God through that. And this is what we read, by the way, is that God ultimately takes him, grabs him by the hair, picks him up and brings him between earth and heaven and starts to show him in the spirit. It says in verse four, for what it's worth, then, that he brought him to Jerusalem. And as he brought him to Jerusalem, actually, verse three, he brought him to Jerusalem. In the first place, he says the north gate of the inner court. And we read there that there. At this first seed, and each step is going to take us deeper in it. And by the way, backwards in time in regards to what people are doing. It says that there was a seed in the, at the seed, the image of jealousy. What in the heck is the image of jealousy that that had been set up? There is a notice at the door of the north gate of the inner court. Well, if we went back a little more than 100 years, roughly about 100 years from the time this is taking place, there was a king in Israel or in Judah. His name was Manasseh. Manasseh was, by the way, the son of Hezekiah, who was a great king for the most part. But Manasseh was wicked. He was horrible. And this guy, he just did anything. God's like, look at this guy. He just, you know, he set up every image. He set up every idol. He actually burned his kid, his boy, uh, to Molech. You know, it's like, it's like if there was something sort of spiritual that he could do that didn't involve God, he was doing it. It was Ouija boards and fortune cookies and, you know, he was, he was lighting incense and doing yoga. I mean, no matter what you want to put in there, no matter whatever it was, if it was weird and funky and exotic and not involving the God of Israel, he was doing it. And it says in the middle of all of that, he set up an Ashtoreth. 
Now, in Ashtoreth, by the way, and pardon me, I'm going to try to say this carefully, a Syrophoenician, it's basically one giant wooden thing that you know whether it's a boy or a girl when it's born. This is the boy. So it's something roughly the size of a one to two story pillar. And it's called the image of jealousy. And he sets it up at the door of the gate of the inner court. So you have to walk around this thing on your way to try to get to close, try to get close to God. What a crazy thought. Interesting for what it's worth. Manasseh has a son. His name's Ammon. He, by the way, is as wicked as dad is. And he will ultimately be assassinated by the people he works with. And then the boy that takes over, that's Manasseh's grandson, is Josiah. He'll be the last great king. He's eight years old, by the way, when he becomes king. And he just starts, he starts cleaning house. He broke and burned the images and so forth. Uh, and he's going to basically take about this whole thing. But please don't miss this. In the first of these four steps he's going to take, it was all about sex. It was just all about the promiscuity that somehow God's going to forgive you anyway. So let's just go out and do whatever we want, however we want, and just lay it before God and say, hey, God, in the end of it, I'll bless my way. In the first step of this, and let me ask you, what would it be like for you if that's what you saw in church? was a big promotion of just do whatever you want. It's, I mean, we're all, it's just a natural thing anyways. Well, let me say, we're not here to surrender to the natural. We're here actually to follow the Lord into the supernatural. And just because it's something you naturally want to do doesn't by any means make it right. And we do that now. Of course, you, we're aware of the fact that that's happening in the church in Mass. We're debating over what's acceptable, but we've been doing that for a long time now. Because we've been doing that in regards to marriage and divorce. We've been doing that in regards to premarital fornication. And look, I'm using traditional terms for a good reason. Because in the first step of this, in the end of it all, they're just, I mean, imagine just having this giant, I mean, better not really imagine it, this giant phallus in the, in, you know, in the church. And you're like, yeah, I mean, this is the gate. So this is sort of like you're entering into the courtyard and you kind of look and go, Wow, that's an, you didn't expect to see that at church. I mean, there's the idea here. And this is the beginning of it. And God is showing Ezekiel this. How do you think Ezekiel is responding to this? I remind you, he just saw the Babylonians start wiping out people and dragging them off. And you start to go, wow, okay, I start to see why judgment makes sense. But that's only the first step of four. So it tells us then in regards to verse six. Furthermore, he said to me, son of man, do you see what they're doing? These great abominations in the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary. Interestingly enough, God actually still said he was there, even though they were doing this. He really wants them to repent. Now turn again and I'll show you even greater abominations. Verse 7 says, so he brought me to the door of the court. We went from the door of the gates to the door of the court. We're moving in closer. What he tells us here, by the way, is he said, I looked and there was a hole in the wall. Verse 8 and he said to me, son of man, dig into the wall. And I, dig, I dug into the wall and there was a door. And he said to me, now go in and see the wicked abominations that they are doing there. So I went in and I saw that every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed around the walls. And there stood before them 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel. And in the midst stood Yahatsania, the son of Shaphan. Here's the most amazing part. Shaphan was actually the scribe who read the Bible to Josiah when he tore down all of those idols. But his son is leading this. Each had a censer in their hand, which tells us that they're praying to these things. And a thick cloud of incense went up, which tells us they're praying long. And he said to them, Son of man, 
Have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols. And they said, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. They're like, well, God's not here anyways. You know, I mean, it seems like I don't see the Lord's blessing in my life. I might as well just do whatever I want. Well, in the second case, of course, where do you see these kind of bugs worshipped? Of course, Egypt. Here's Shaphan's son with 70 leaders. And they're burning idols. They're offering prayer to bugs. Now, when people pray to certain bugs in regards to, and I could develop it a lot, but I'm trying to make it simple and clear, uh, in regards to Egypt, what were they actually seeking these things for? In the simplest stuff, simplest sense, stuff. They were looking for stuff. And it's interesting because here are these people, and these are they're supposed to be the leaders, and what they're doing is they're trying to promote this concept privately that, oh, I just could get more stuff. I could just get more stuff. And they're burning incense and all. And they're like, you could go to places where they tell you, no matter what you want, you just tell God what it is. You claim it in Jesus' name. And you put a picture of it up on your wall. And if you stare at it long enough and keep saying in Jesus' name, you're going to get it. That hasn't changed much. Well, how do you feel about that? If you were Ezekiel as a priest, how do you feel about that? Well, what you see is the leaders are all there and they're not seeking God. What they're doing is they just want stuff. Give me stuff. So there was sex. Give them sex and then give them stuff. But that's only the second of the four. By the way, what's interesting is Colossians 3.5 tells us, Put to death the members that are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness. Look at what he starts with. Passion and evil desire. And then he says, And covetousness, which is idolatry. When you live your whole life going, this is what I have to have, but God's not giving it to you. Well, then clearly that becomes an idol. Verse 13, step three. So the Lord said to me, turn again and I'll show you greater abominations that they're doing. So he brought me now to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house. And to my dismay, women now were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. And I'm sure that impacts you, right? Tammuz. And you're just like, of course, Tammuz. We went from the Syrophoenician Ashtoreth, the giant pole, to the bugs of Egypt, now to a story that takes us back to Gilgamesh and the Sumerians. That's, by the way, the Gulf War area that we had back when, Yemen, that area. Where, by the way, if you will, that's where Abraham came from, Ur, back in Genesis 12. And according to the folklore, the idea was is that there was this gal, Tammuz. Tammuz had a husband. He was a sweet guy. And what happened ultimately, he was gored to death by a wild boar. And she cried and she cried and she didn't stop crying until he was raised back to life. So, but what happened is when he was dead, everything turned, turned really bad. All the flowers died. All the flowers fell. All the milk got sour. Everyone had bad breath. You know, you had a bad hair day. You couldn't even get your makeup on. You always missed your train. That was kind of the idea. It was always really bad. Until the guy came back. So this whole thing morphs is that by the time you have this, this story. And the idea is if the concept was that if you could cry enough with this gal, Tammuz, or for Tammuz, your whole life would be blessed. Because when she did it, she didn't stop until she finally got what she wanted. And then everything got nice again. When he, was, when he came back, now, of course, the flowers bloomed again. Everything was nice. Things got back to color from black and white. And everybody was happy. So in the third case, what you have are a bunch of women that are attaching themselves, in all of these cases, to anyone but God. And here, what they're coming in for is just to give me a blessed life. This is what I want. And you're aware of the fact we can do that, too. Oh, God, just give me a comfortable, peaceful life. 
no problems, no challenges. Make sure that I never, I mean, that all the money's in before a bill shows up. Make sure that everybody likes me. Make sure that there's no conflict. I'm never sick. And you can go to places and you, they'll tell you if that's not who you are, then clearly you don't have enough faith. But how does it make you feel when you look here? And this is what Ezekiel's seeing now is we're almost at the house of God. We're almost inside it. What we've seen so far, we've seen that it was all about sex and then it was all about stuff and then it was all about happiness. Just make me happy. And then we get to the last of them. This is in verse 15. Well, have you seen this, son of man? Turn again and I'll show you greater abominations than these. I was like, this just keeps getting worse. So you brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. Now he's inside the house, to the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar. Twenty-five men there with their backs to the Lord, or backs to the temple, and their faces toward the east, and they're worshiping the sun. Verse 17, he says, have you seen this, O son of man? It's a trivial thing. Do you think this is a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit these abominations that they're committing here? He says, for they have filled the land with violence, and they have returned to provoke me to anger. Indeed, they put a branch to their nose. And of course you think, oh, a branch to your nose. Wow. So I started looking at this whole thing, this tukin soferim, this thing of branch to the nose, and I kind of I get it. Because I see, by the way, Job says, when he starts to defend himself in Job 20, or 31, 26, he says, look, have I done this? Have I at any point secretly been enticed? Have I observed the sun when it shines? Or have I put my hand in my mouth? Now understand... What was the case in something like this is that people were bowing to the sun. And this is, of course, even goes back pretty Sumerian here to a place where what they were really looking for was experience. And it got to the point, I mean, why would you put your hand to your nose? There's two reasons other than it's running. One's to, well, it's to smell it or to get something in it. And the people would light certain kind of branches on fire. And, of course, sniffing them had certain effects on them. So get the idea here. These people, what, what, every time Elijah looks a little, digs a little, or Elijah, I'm sorry, every time Ezekiel digs a little deeper and he digs a little deeper and he digs a little deeper, he's like, what's strange is, the first one was like, everyone's here basically for sex. They're all here because what they really want, this is the place to find a mate. This is the place where we can fall in love and then let's just get crazy with it. And he goes and he goes, let me show you crazier than that. And he digs a little deeper than that. And he has to kind of, if you imagine, walking around that, uh, that post. And then you go into this and he's like, well, let me show you this. Now it's really just all about getting stuff and let's just what can I get and what's going to what's going to give me what I want and then he takes us deeper into that and he looks at the next one and he goes now take a look at this now it's just about people saying bless me give me stuff you make 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 me happy let it always be about making me happy and I want to make sure that when I come in all it's going to do is I'm going to walk in I'm going to walk out, I'm going to feel great about myself and then we go deeper to that and it's like they've totally turned their backs on me and the thing about the sun over all the other ones is that was the all-encompassing to the people it wasn't like okay God's here, but I want a little of this on the side. And then you go a step beyond and Well, God's here, but I'm going to have this to the side. You know, okay, I have God, but I'll also have this. But by the end, it's like, I don't want God at all. The sun's good enough for me. I can see that. I can feel that. I can experience that warmth. I don't need beyond that. How do you feel about that when you see that? Because when Jesus shows up, understand, that's what he's seeing. He's saying people have come in to get, to get, to get, to get. And they've turned other things into big business. Church has become big business. Now look, at before we want to throw stones at someone else for it, here's where the rubber meets the road on this. 
Because it tells us, by the way, in this, what's, what really seems to tick them off doesn't just seem like that it was the, they were buying and selling. But notice what it says. Let's go back to our text. I want to run through it. It tells us in verse 12 again, Matthew 21, 12. Jesus went into the temple of God. He drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple, overturned them the tables of the money changers he makes two specific the camera focuses on two things one they were saying well there's clean money and and not clean money and we'll take it all but we'll make sure that in any case you're going to only walk around with the clean stuff uh, and you get the idea behind that and then he says this is the seed of those who sold doves now this is the issue is that for those who sold doves according to back in leviticus chapter 5 when you were going to give an offering for your sin It was supposed to be a lamb, but what if you couldn't afford it? In Leviticus 5, 7, he told us, well, what you do ultimately is you go and you get a couple turtle doves. They were supposed to be offered to you for free. Because the point was, is you were too poor to get anything, but God didn't want to stop you from being serious about your sin. So imagine you've made the trek. It's been a one-week travel to get to Jerusalem so that you can go and offer to God an offering for your sins so you can fellowship with him. And somebody comes over and goes, no, no I, mean, and I don't think you have enough. And all of a sudden, now here you are, and you're leaving. You can't even get in. All of a sudden, the cover charge, somebody had turned into big business. And you would come to fellowship with God, and now someone's telling you you can't because you don't have enough money. Could you imagine why that upset Jesus, who came to be with us? And in all of that, this is where it goes? He turns and he looks, and and you can imagine Jesus going, you know what? You guys are done. But here's the question I've got to ask. Is that in all of this, I wonder what happened on Tuesday or on Wednesday. I mean, on Monday, Jesus drives these people out. But do you think they came back on Tuesday? Maybe a couple brave ones? What about Wednesday, when they start to see that Jesus doesn't do it again? Do they show up a little bit more? By the time Jesus is crucified on Friday, do you think at that point it's back to business as usual? And the reason I say that is because of this. Because in, as desecrated as this temple has become here, God tells us very clearly how that pertains to us. He tells us, by the way, in the Corinthian letters, first of all, that you are not a person with a soul. And that might be revolutionary for some of you. God doesn't say you're a person with a soul. God says you are a soul with a body. What you are is the soul. That's the part that goes with you. The body is the part you don't take with you. And I, I don't know about you, but for me, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. When God starts to talk about this, please understand something here. You have a house. That body is called a house. 2 Corinthians 5.1. He says, when this earthly house is destroyed, we have a building from God. God's got a fresh place for you to move into. When I die here on earth, it won't be just like death. What it is, is I'm just relocating. I'm moving to a new place. And it's a good one. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, don't you know that you're the temple of the living God? That's the building you are now. You're God's temple. If you've said yes to Jesus Christ, according to Ephesians 1.13, The moment you said yes to his gift, he came and moved in. What you said yes to was giving God permission to move in. And if God lives there, how could that not be a temple? 
1 Corinthians 3.16, it tells us not only do you, don't you realize you're the temple of God, but he also says the Spirit dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you? You're not your own. 2 Corinthians 6.16 tells us you're the temple of the living God. So don't walk around that which will destroy you. So consider this for just a second. If you're a soul with a body, and the body is your house, you can pick your neighborhood. Decide what, I mean, if you were to pick your neighborhood, what would you pick? I'd want a place that was safe, that had good neighbors. You can pick, if you think about it, you can pick who comes in and doesn't, because after all, it's your house. You can choose your guests, and you can also choose your furnishings. The things you know that when they're in your house will make you comfortable. Now, when Suzanne and I were about to be married, this is way back almost 27 years now, I got to, I got to the apartment first. And I had to look around the house, and I started to ask myself, of all the stuff that I own, is there anything I could bring from my old house that wouldn't be good for my wife to live there? Things that would make her uncomfortable. Things that wouldn't make her feel at home. Things that would make her feel like she wasn't welcome. Because clearly those things needed to not go there. They needed to be out of the house. And good for gone, or gone for good because, well, let's be honest, I intend on spending the rest of my life with this woman. Why in the world would I think that this should come with a time stamp on it, an expiration date? I wish I had thought more about that when I said yes to Jesus. Because when he came and moved in here, I start to ask myself, well, what neighborhood does this belong in now? A neighborhood where the one who properly lives there should feel at home. That there shouldn't be anything inside this temple. Well, that would make him feel not at home. And I go back to that Ezekiel 8 text and I can't stop, can't stop thinking, well, well, what about me? Is there any area in regards to lust or any area in regards to what I think I want, covetousness, that I'm battling God over? Or any area of my life where I'm like, what I'm just looking for is comfort instead of becoming Christ-like. Because I wonder what would happen if Jesus cleaned out our temples today. I mean, think about it. If we're all parts of the body, how many parts of the body does it take to be infected before the whole body will be infected? Well, there's one variable. How good is your autoimmune system? And understand, it doesn't take much to infect people within a church by something that doesn't belong to him. But I don't want to be the infector. How about you? Not at least of that which is bad. Jesus went and he cleaned out the temple and he drove these people out because you know what happens is when the temple is convoluted, polluted, and clotted, you know what happens? The people who really need him, they can't find him. Not at least with me, with me helping. So listen, what happens? Jesus' response to that, by the way, notice he says in regards to this, he says, look, it, it is written, my house should be called a house of prayer. What we really should expect when we assemble 
is intimizing with Jesus. I mean, we could come for the same reasons to find a mate. We could come to try to make our lives nicer and feel good about ourselves. We could come to get stuff. And even that stuff is intellectual little nuggets to prepare us for the next argument when we walk out there or whatever it is. But if you could get all of that stuff and really not fellowship with Jesus, would it be worth it? Are they means to the end? Are they the end? Or you just come for some experience? I could just get the shakes and the, the oils and the woo and the holy hallelujah. As long as I can do something and I can feel like I've experienced something, then clearly things are good. And whether that is in what we would call a worship experience or whether that's what we call in regards to the time in the word or in whatever it is, if I could just feel, if I could just get some kind of experience. Now, look, nothing wrong with experience unless that's what you really come for. Nothing wrong with being taught, of course. Nothing wrong with the idea of being able to have a song you can sing along with and enjoy. But in the end of it all, it has to be about Jesus or it's not worth it. Because you can go to places and they'll do all of the other things really well. And I've sat in meetings where the whole thing is like a business meeting about how do we get more people in and how do we do this and in the end of it all. But it's never, there's no Jesus in any of the stuff that I've sat with. And I'm gone. I think we're missing the point here. I'm confident we are. Because, you know, what this is supposed to be is a place where people can come and just listen to God and speak to God and pour forth their heart and, and know they've encountered Him. Now, look, let's be honest. Just because the Lord's there and you come does not mean you're going to intimize with Him. Part of that is our own. We have to check our own hearts to see if that's what we've come for. Have we come as consumers? Have we come as his children? But he says, you know, this was what we're supposed to have here. And you know what you made? You made this a den of thieves. You made this a place where people can rip off everyone else. And they've all come to take. Everyone's come to take. Nobody hears anymore about laying down their lives, picking up their crosses and following Jesus because that's just not popular. And he pulls from two interesting texts, Isaiah 56, 7, where God tells us, by the way, look at just because you're a foreigner or even because you're a eunuch, don't think you don't have a place in the house of God. I'm giving you a loose paraphrase for the sake of clarity and time. But he says this is supposed to be a place where any nation could come and pray as long as they're willing to submit to the God that they're praying to. It tells us in Jeremiah 7, 11, that though God had intended it to be a place where we actually surrender, instead it's become a place of thieves. This house which is called by my name has become a den of thieves in your eyes, God says. Zechariah 7.11. And with that, he's driving them out. But hear me as we bring this to close. Jesus knows he's going to be executed. And he's going to be executed, by the way, by the people he's standing against right now. And I don't know whether you've said yes to Jesus or not. That choice is yours. But nobody's going to show me greater selflessness than this Savior of mine who had everything but me and was willing to give it all up just to get me. He would trade it all for me alone. And you too. But the most amazing part to me is what happened after Jesus did that. If you have said yes to Jesus, and maybe your temple has gotten clotted, polluted, convoluted. And we're afraid. We are afraid if God really got a hold of us, what he'd do to us. 
we're afraid that he'd rip stuff out that we really want to hold on to. But let's face it, if God wants to yank it and you want to hold on to it, that's an idol. But what would happen if God did really clean out the temple? Well, look at what it tells us in verse 14. Then, then the blind were healed. Then the lame. But notice in both cases that they came to him. He cleared out that room to give you a route to get to him. Because to be honest, no matter how much you practice Christianese, when you clod up the temple, the best you can get is in proximity, but not with him like you should be, or me with him like I should be, until I let him clean out the place. And when he does clean out the place, then it's just me and him. And you know what happens? As I start to see clearly again. And I get my walk back. Maybe the reason I can't see is because I can't see past all the stuff I've put in my temple. And the reason I don't have a walk is because I've clotted the, uh, the floor so I can't actually walk. That's not what God intended. Do you know what else happens as a result of that? Praise. Did you notice that in verse 15? Praise. Childlike praise. The kind where God actually says, this is what it really looks like to come into the house. It's what it looks like. You need to follow their lead because what real greatness is, is something like this. And they're saying, Hosanna, do you remember what Hosanna means? Save now. Save from what? Do you really think the kids are crying out to save from Rome? Or do you think they may be saying, save from all of this? So it could just be me and you again? But I want to warn you. Hosanna, save, son of David, king, or Lord. It's more than just be Jesus being your Savior. He's got to be your Lord. And you've got to be willing to let him be both. See, when he clears it all out, what happens is he stops being your butler and he becomes your Lord where he belongs. Me too. And what these kids are crying out is, you are Savior and Lord. That's what you are. But I want to warn you, when that happens, somebody's not going to like it. And probably somebody that you trust or know or even respect. Because they were the ones keeping the temple and they were the ones making a profit from it. So they tell him, do you hear what these people are saying? And Jesus quotes from Psalm 8 when he says, a thousand years before Jesus came, three thousand years ago from here. When David says, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory above the heavens. And out of the mouth of babes and infants, you've perfected strength or praise. When I consider the work of your fingers, the sun and the moon and the stars that you've made, I start to go, who am I that you'd ever know me? You'd ever be mindful of me. That you'd ever even give me the smallest thought. And you made man a little lower than the angels, but you've crowned him with glory and honor and then given him all this authority. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And in the middle of that, he says, you know, out of the mouth of babes and infants, do you know what they're not doing? They're not coming and telling Jesus, here are my 
add-ons, my addendums to our contract. They're just like, I need you. That's all. I just need you. Because that's perfect praise. Perfect praise is God is not. God, if I do this, what will you give me? Perfect praise is I give you all because you deserve it. And I'm not going to tell you what to do with it because you're the Lord. And at which point then we read, of course, at the end of this, that he left. He went out of the city and he went back to Bethany, assumedly staying with Lazarus and his sisters. And this was Monday. As we go to prayer, let me ask you, what cleaning does he have to do in our hearts today? What did we come here for? We come here because we felt like we had to? We come here because we felt a sense of obligation? We come here because we felt like if we did, we'd get God in our pocket and then we can get him to do what we want? Do we come to intimize with God to swim? Or we just come to be with Him and to be with those who love being with Him too? Because you know, once that relationship thrives, then all the rest starts happening. And we see right, and we walk right, and we praise right. Well, I want to take us to prayer before we sing our last song. And I, I just want to ask, first of all, if you've made claim to Jesus, do you, will you give him permission, like I intend to right now, to clean it all out? To clean out the stuff that I feel entitled to, to clean out the stuff that I feel like somehow in all of this I've been swayed because the crowd around me has said, hey, eh, you don't really have to be that full on. There's no cross-carrying in the crowds. You become your own. And the laughing stock and the butt of jokes. When Jesus drove out the money changers and he drove out the buyers and sellers, how many people do you think were left? Here's the crazy part. Which church was more successful? Where was it more right with God? I'm not telling you if there's a whole lot of people going somewhere that it's not blessed by God by any means. But that cannot be the governance in our own minds to qualify what really makes it. Because if it does, we haven't come for the reason he wants us to come anyways. He's inviting us to his house. And though he's everywhere walking with us and being with us and dwelling in us, there's a place where we actually start to really consider whether my life correlates with his. People will talk about how they think the Bible's irrelevant or church is irrelevant to the society. Might I say it is, but the problem is not the church or the Bible. The problem is society. The church doesn't need to change to make it relevant to the world. The world needs to change to make it relevant to Christ and it needs to start with Christians. I mean, are we relevant to heaven? Are we relevant to Jesus? And I love that word. Oh, how I want to be relevant. And we're going to pray and give God permission to come in, search and seize anything he wants to. But then, 
If you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, last thing and we pray, Jesus will do all of this because he's ultimately going to the cross to pay for every one of our sins and rise again on the third day to give us a choice. Before that, we didn't have a choice. We just stood before God guilty. And no matter what you tried to do before God, you, weren't, you, didn't, you didn't have enough. But now God has offered his own son, Jesus, who died on the cross so that all of your crimes could, of your heart and mine could be punished and then raise again to give us a brand new life. Do you want to say yes to that? Because that's how it even starts. By declaring Jesus not just Savior, but Lord, getting behind him and following him. Man, if Christianity were that, could you imagine what would happen to London? Would you pray with me, please? Father God in heaven, I want to thank you for the opportunity we've had today to be in your word. But we recognize, Lord, right now, even if we gave you permission and said, God, please take over us completely and drive everything out, that could be our Monday experience, just like the temple here. I don't want tomorrow to be a day where the merchants start making their way back where the clotting starts coming again where the convolution and the confusion starts to come again Man, when it's just me and you it is just so simple and so good and then I just move in things that just don't belong and I feel like somehow you'll adjust to the discomfort because somehow the priority has shifted from making you at home. But here, Lord, I pray that would be different. And I pray right now, Lord, for every person here who calls upon your name. If we've been busy being a consumer to you, as if you're sort of like Amazon and we just sort of punch in what we want and wave our hands across them or whatever and pray with enough vigor and emotion that somehow we should get it. But really, in the end, we're really still trying to call the shots. I pray you would bust through every door and every gate and rip out everything that doesn't belong there. I'm not just asking, Lord, for you to pull out the things that are big and obvious, but, Lord, for every speck of dust that's not in surrender to you, I want it gone, God. Gone completely. I just want to see again and follow you again with a perfect right walk, with a right walk. I want praise to come at complete surrender. Perfect praise. That isn't trying to sway you into my camp. But is just amazed that I, have, I get the honor at all to follow you. That the invitation is there. So I pray right now for every person here, myself included, if we've claimed you. And you've claimed us that we would take you for who you are, Lord and Savior, and let you now bust through those gates, those doors, 
And without anything, Lord, be it sensual, be it covetous, be it in our lust for comfort, be it in our hunger for experience, but somehow putting all of those things before you, making those things our end desire instead of just being intimate with you. Clean us out, God. Even here, don't let us leave here, Lord, clogged, confused, but rather in total peace. And while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, the Bible says if you're willing to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And I just want to give you the privilege of saying yes to him today, that today you could start that walk with him. And it starts with your choice. And here's a simple, a sort of a sample prayer. And if you agree at the end, I ask you simply to give a confident amen. And what you're saying is, yes, yes, I agree. And let those words be mine. So be it. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I am a sinner. Like all men are sinners, I'm a sinner. And I stand before you guilty on my own merit. And you as a righteous judge punish all wrong. But I believe you so loved me that you gave this one possible absolution where you would let your son come to earth clothed in sinful flesh, yet never surrendering to that flesh and he chose to take my crimes my guilt upon himself and chose to die on the cross so that all of my guilt could be punished and on the third day just as you promised he was raised from the dead to offer me a brand new life no longer under the dominion of that guilt and regret and shame but now set free to be yours to follow you and be the temple that you created me to be, that you're even right now seeking to reinvent me to become. So I give you permission to come and to move into my life and to become then the landlord of this life now. Have me, please. Make me yours. And let this home that I, that I am now for you, let it be in all points comfortable for you that you would make yourself at home there. And I thank you for giving me this option for which I say yes. So Jesus, be my Savior and be my Lord, I pray in your name. If you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. Lord, you've heard now our responses to that. I pray, Lord, you would move, cement those convictions, I pray. Amen.